everyone. Welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol and I'm so glad you're joining us today and tuning in to this series we're doing on Revelation. Today is episode three and we are beginning our journey to the seven churches today. And I love studying the seven churches. I think you'll find them fascinating as well. But something I want to keep in mind, I want you to keep in mind as we go through each one is that these are real places and they are real people we're talking about. And they found themselves in very real situations, difficult situations, as they lived under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And so Jesus, he is giving a specific message to each church. I just want you to keep that in mind, the realness of what's happening here. Because oftentimes I think we glance over the letters to try to get to the things about the future. When the letters are some of the most important messages we can actually read, not just about what faced them, the first century Christians, but how those situations will not be that much different from what the church will face with the Antichrist and the Antichrist system when it's in full force. So I just want you to, when we go through these, just really try to let it speak to you. Let these letters speak to you and help you prepare. Keep in mind, when these first century Christians were hearing or reading these letters, they, of course, had a full understanding of their present situation. They were living it. Therefore, when we read them, it's important for us to understand the context of that environment they were living in and what they faced daily, how they would step out of their doors and massive temples are you know, staring at him in the face and they have to pay homage to different statues and to different emperors. So pay close attention to each and every letter because there is something that God wants us to glean personally and I believe corporately as a church body today. So we've gone through chapter one and at the very end of this chapter, John is commanded to write three things. And I just want to point these out because I didn't address them in the last episode. Number one, he is to write the things in which he has seen. Number two, he's to write the things that are. And then number three, he's to write the things that will take place. So he has to write some things that are going to be in the present, and he's going to be writing things that are going to be in the future. And it's really important just to take note of that. Because as he begins to write these seven letters to the seven churches, he is writing things that are. Meaning these letters, they had a message for now, for their present time. They were for those first century Christians. There are some things that Jesus wanted to work out with these seven churches because they were not conditioned yet to be able to come through some of the suffering that was most likely going to come to them. Their hearts had to be in the right place. So these letters were going to help prepare them. So those letters were for now. They were the right for the present. Because what they faced in this region were strong satanic evil forces. You're talking the principalities, the powers, rulers of darkness, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. I can't go into what each four of those mean in this podcast, But there's a reason Paul writes about these dark powers in Ephesians 6, because Ephesus is in this region. This region is surrounded by them. These seven churches are surrounded by these forces. And one of the cities in particular, which has one of the churches that receives one of these letters, 
is a city named Pergamon, or in its modern Greek form, it'll, it, it might say this in your Bible, is Pergamus. This place is important because this is where Satan set up his headquarters. Jesus calls Pergamon the place where, quote, Satan's throne is. So how is his throne there and why is it there? And why is the region where all these churches are that surround this throne, what do they face being that close to the throne? Well, the spread of the gospel is why it's there. It's starting to go from beyond the West and now move eastward along these trade routes that will take this message of Jesus to the people in India and China and all other parts of the world. So, of course, Satan has set up his throne in the very heart, the very region of where this church growth is to happen. And how did he do this? Well, he established a, an altar. He had the altar of Zeus established and based in Pergamon. And it was massive. It was set high on top of a mountain for everyone to see and had a continual fire burning day and night. And when we talk about Pergamon, the church of Pergamon, I think you're going to find that church very interesting. But the distance of these churches, these seven churches from that altar of Zeus and Pergamon, it reveals something quite interesting. The churches that had the closest proximity to Pergamon, the closest proximity to this, quote, seat of Satan, they struggled or suffered the greatest. While churches that were the furthest away, like Laodicea and Ephesus, posed very little threat. Today, we are going to begin with the church in Ephesus because it is the first church Jesus mentions in Revelation. We're going to talk about the city and history and things like that and then move into the letter so that you can see how Jesus will pull in all these different elements in order to reveal important truths for each particular place he's dealing with. Now, before I go into Ephesus, uh, let me just mention a few things about the area so that you understand what was the draw into this area. These, this region where these seven churches were was a very fertile valley, whereas the rest of Turkey tended to be dry and barren, with the exception of a strip of land uh, north adjacent to the Black Sea. Well, this fertile region, this fertile area drew in wealthy people. And when you draw in the wealthy people, you can establish a culture. And when you establish a culture, then you've got to establish government. So you can see how um, this whole region began to change and flourish. Well, Ephesus was located on the coast, and it was a port city. And it became the second in importance to Rome. Did you know that? Ephesus was the second in importance to Rome. And so therefore, it was a flourishing city. Had about 100,000 people that lived there at the time of these letters, which is a lot of people at that time. And as we also mentioned before, it was a trade route. And a trade route that came in through a port meant that there was a lot of activity you had many people coming through from many different parts of the world, bringing influence into this city, but then even beyond. So commercially, this city was very successful, and then it became very influential politically, and they became a self-governing democracy. But culturally is where they were really making a big impact. Yes, from science and philosophy, but also from the arts and entertainment side. And that's where I want to mainly focus. 
If you were to go to Ephesus today, one of the things you would notice right off the bat, one of the most prominent structures you would see is this tall building, the remnant of it, which was the library. And the library was actually an engineering wonder because for you photographers out there, it's built like a, like a fisheye lens of a camera. And so it was concave and it would give the appearance that it was wider or bigger than it actually was. The other interesting thing about the library in Ephesus, which lends itself to the type of immoral living standards people were living by at the time, was that underneath the library were tunnels that were built to take you to the brothels. So if your significant other was saying, honey, I'm going to the library, they might be there for a while. But the other attraction that drew people in was the theater. And the theater also was an archaeological wonder, an engineering feat. Actually, all of the theaters that were built under the Roman Empire in all these different cities were, were quite, quite extraordinary. This particular one held roughly 24,000 people. That's a quarter of the city when you're talking about 100,000 people. So people from all over the region would come to this theater in Ephesus because this is where they would do the performing arts, they had gladiator games, and they had other sporting games, kind of like the Olympics. So it was a huge draw. And as I mentioned, you know, the Roman Empire, they had multiple theaters. And so they all had something very unique about them is that the acoustics in the Roman theaters were mind-boggling. You can literally stand on the stage, speak in a normal voice, and everyone can hear you on the top row. It's, it's really incredible to me that people were able to build things like that and that you can actually stand in those ruins today and it has that same effect. And actually Rome, they built, for those of you who've traveled and you, you know what I'm talking about here, they built all of their cities alike. They were all miniature versions of Rome. So if you've ever traveled to Greece or other countries, if you've ever walked ruins that uh, uh, in places that were under the Roman Empire, you know what I'm talking about. Even if you go to Israel, there's a place called Bet Shan. This is where Saul's body hung on the gate when he was decapitated. Well, Bet Shan is even a mini replica of Rome. They all set. They were all set up with their bathhouses. They had their libraries, their theaters, their main streets. Well, Ephesus was no different. In fact, the main street of Ephesus is even still there, and you can walk on it. And that main street would have been filled with shops of all kinds and just a real bustling place to be. But the theater, that was the theater of all theaters. So entertainment and arts really drew in a lot of people. But there was also the religious component. And this is what the early church really came up against hard because like most of the cities in the Roman Empire it was centered on idolatry the worship of pagan gods and goddesses but also emperor worship and so although Ephesus worshiped the gods of the pantheon their focal point was on one particular goddess the goddess of Diana or Artemis she was a fertility goddess and they had the most enormous pagan temple dedicated to her, about, about 420 feet square. But what it was actually dedicated to was a meteorite that fell out of space and fell on Ephesus at one point. It was a black meteorite 
that fell out of space and it was like a big black block with bumps all over it. And the people thought that each bump was like the shape of a female breast. And so many believed it to be the goddess Diana, since she was a fertility goddess. And they took that meteorite and they set it up on the altar. And then silver reproductions were sold of it. And it became big business in Ephesus. So this was part of the religious component, the worship of the goddess Diana. They were actually really big. The Roman Empire's really big on goddess worship and mother worship. That was probably even larger. And that's where you come up with mother nature. We must be careful, Christians, my brothers and sisters out there. If you loosely mention Mother Nature did this, Mother Nature did that, Mother Nature was a form of worship in pagan cultures. So just be careful. Well, this enormous temple to Diana towered over the city, and it was run by eunuch priests and female priestesses. And if you've ever studied the rituals associated with paganism, The goal would be for these priests and priestesses to get themselves so worked up during their rituals, they would get themselves worked into a kind of an erotic frenzy, and it would result in very perverted acts. And they believed that those acts that they would do were um, considered um, um, honorable offerings to that God. And so it was a very um, immoral place, very immoral society, because those perverse things, if it was okay to do in the temple, then of course, it worked its way out into society. So society was just a very immoral society. Now within the temple of Diana, they actually had a statue built of her, many statues, but it's a very odd statue. It's got all of these knobs, these weird things that come out of her chest and her stomach area, similar to that of the meteorite. So if you want to Go on the internet and look up the statue of Diana. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about. And some of the people would relate those images to either grapes or eggs or breasts, as we've mentioned, because of fertility. I mean, just weird stuff. But this was their mode of worship, and they were, they were loyal to this goddess Diana. They were obsessed over this goddess. And this was the culture of the city. And this is where a house church was planted. You know, sometimes I think (laughs) many of us today tend to be picking up and moving into places that feel safe or feel like a healthier environment maybe than the cities or the states that we're currently living in, right? But yet God was sending people into these environments to plant house churches to bring the gospel to these lost souls. And so it's just something to ponder. Now this house church, this church in Ephesus was very influential because this was the place that Paul frequented, and he stayed sometimes for quite a while. In fact, we know more about the church in Ephesus than we do of any other church that we're going to talk about in these seven churches. But this is where in your Bible you're going to find, you're going to read about people like Priscilla and Aquila. They traveled with Paul here. Um, They met in Corinth and came here. Apollos from your Bible, he was from Alexandria, he's here. And so there's a lot of different people that came through or started out in Ephesus because from this place, a lot of activity concerning the church took place. There was even a school of discipleship here. So Ephesus is where a lot of people would get trained up and then they would get sent out. So this was a very, very important church. 
Now, John is believed to have arrived in Ephesus around 67 AD, and he's not exiled to Patmos until close to 95 AD. So there's a good 20 plus years that John is in Ephesus where he is ministering in this area and to the churches that are in this region. But not only that, he is training up very influential people that would become known as some of the church fathers, such as Polycarp. Now, Paul is believed to be there roughly 12 years before John. So Paul meets up with Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth. They follow him to Ephesus and they help him to train up new converts. Paul preached in the synagogues at, you know, for several months and he would make some progress. But some people were hardened to his message. So then he would focus his attention in the school of Tyrannus. This is in the book of Acts. I'm not telling you anything earth shattering here. You can just read the book of Acts and get all this information. But this went on for a couple of years. And God worked unusual miracles through Paul while he was there. He even threw handkerchiefs and apron. When those would get laid on people, diseases would leave. I mean, so the anointing of the Lord was on Paul greatly. So the power of God is moving through Paul and it's moving through others in Ephesus. And many people are converting from paganism to Christ. And they were confessing and telling their deeds. And many who practice magic, they brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Keep in mind, my friends, these books would contain formulas. These books contained spells. These books were contained astrological forecasts. These books were not reproducible on like a printing press at the time. So if someone had a book with handwritten formulas and spells and astrological forecasts and different things in them, and then they burn them, there's no way to get that information back. So this was a huge deal that many who practice magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of everybody. Think about the customers that are witnessing these people burning these books that contained those things in them that they, that they depended on. And the value, it says in the book of Acts, of these books was 50,000 pieces of silver, which would equate to 10 laborers 20 years to earn. This was high-valued books, high value, because not only was it the... Um, source of income for the people that practice those things. But again, think of all the customers they had as well. And so this transformation began to disrupt the lucrative business of idolatry, and it affected even the selling of the statues. And there was an economic hit. And one person in particular who was directly impacted was a silversmith named Demetrius. He made the silver shrines of Diana and brought in no small profit. Well, he had enough, and he rallied the, rallied the people together to get them all worked up against Paul and the Christians, and he was angry. The trade, the temple of the goddess Diana, everything he considered to be at risk, and so he was getting everyone worked up into a lather, and the people became angry then. And so a protest started to brew and fill the city with confusion. You can see this taking place. And they all rushed into where? The theater, this famous theater that held 24,000 people. Well, the whole town that's worked up rushed into the theater in one accord, and the Bible says, being of one mind. Can you imagine being in a crowd of thousands who are all of one mind, angry against the Christians? 
They seized Paul's travel companions, Gaius and Aristarchus, and they're all meeting in this massive theater. Gaius, I believe, is the one, I'm just thinking this on the top of my head, I think he's the one mentioned in Titus. Anyway, uh, the disciples, they wouldn't let Paul in because of the anger of the mob. And so they thought he would probably be killed as he probably would have been. And Paul wanted to go in, but the disciples wouldn't let him. So the whole city is now worked up. Now I want you to imagine for a minute, okay, think of what we talked about, the acoustics. Now think about the uh, number of people in the city, 100,000. Now think of the number of people that this theater holds, 24,000, right? Well, now you've got a quarter of the city gathered in one place, chanting and screaming with this amazing acoustics for two straight hours screaming great is diana of the ephesians great is diana of the ephesians and they're screaming it and they're chanting it for two straight hours the bible says acts chapter 19 in a place with unbelievable acoustics. Imagine for a moment, my friend, if you were walking down that main street, if you were in your little house church, if you were walking in the countryside, you would be able to hear this from a great distance. What would that do to you? What kind of trepidation would that invoke? What kind of fear would that stimulate in somebody? You could feel the energy of what's going on. Well, finally, a clerk came in, quieted the crowd down and, and told them to just, you know, basically relax. And he says something important. He says, these people are neither robbers, nor are they blasphemers against your goddess, which is quite a thing to say about the believers in Ephesus. They never spoke a blasphemous word against Diana. They were strong in the faith. They were training people up. They were not afraid to go out there onto the streets and give the gospel. But they didn't blasphemy the, a word against Diana. They may have talked about statues being false gods, but they apparently never spoke a word against her. And that's something to think about. So this is where they are. And this is where they're taking the gospel. This is the environment they're in. I'm telling you, you're up against these spirits that Paul is mentioning in Ephesians 6. And yet they're sending out missionaries to go plant churches in the surrounding region, in places that are only a few miles from them. A region that is surrounded by these principalities and powers, these rulers of darkness and these spiritual hosts of wickedness. This is the environment that the seven churches are up against. So knowing this, consider now, it's 40 plus years later from that moment of great is Diana of the Ephesians, right? That the apostle John is finding himself in exile, writing a letter to this city. And I want to read to you Revelation 2 verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things say he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and he who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. 
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. As mentioned earlier, Jesus doesn't actually use his name, but an attribute of himself throughout this book. And he opens up in this church, or opens up this letter to this church of Ephesus, like you would open any letter. You are going to address yourself. You are, the whole, every letter of the church is written in a structure like a letter. You have an opening of who it's to, you are addressing who you are, you are making your point, and then you close the letter out. And that's what he does in every letter. And he addresses it to the church in Ephesus, that's who it's to, but then he identifies himself. He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Jesus is in the midst of these seven churches. He understands this region in which these little house churches are planted. He's got his church in the palm of his hand. He sees and knows everything. He sees the idolatry. He sees the temples. He sees the pagan priests and priestesses. He sees the brothel tunnels. He sees everything going on in the cities. He hears the chanting. He understands this is a challenging, challenging environment. And Ephesus is the hub. And so he gets it. But the thing is, they were so focused on all of that, so focused on the mission, which is super important. But in the midst of all that, he had one thing that he wanted them to be noticed of. They left him. They left the most important thing, their first love, him. In the midst of all of the work that we do for the kingdom of God, in the midst of all of the ways that we lead churches or the ways that we are out here moving forth uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit, bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth, there is something very important, my friends, that we cannot forget. We cannot let all of those things take up all of our time that we leave our first love. The most important thing that you read about in the Gospels is, do you know me? Do you know me? We must always put him first, time with him first, time in the scripture first to get to know him, to love him, to worship him, and to serve him. That's most important. He compliments the people in this church. He compliments their zeal. He compliments their devotion and labor. They're prevailing in this hostile, idolatrous environment. I mean, could a church in America prevail like that today? Could a church in the West prevail like that today? Ephesus was the hub. He knew that. They had the discipleship school. They sent out the missionaries. They were seeing many conversions. They knew the word of God. They were rooted in truth. This is, this is the kind of church I would want to be in. They couldn't tolerate those who were evil. They had tested those who called themselves apostles. Oh my goodness, if we could just do that today. There are too many self-appointed apostles and prophets today, my friends. We have to be so careful. We have to test them. Make sure you're testing people. 
The people in this church, they could probably spot a false prophet a mile away. But they lost something. Never forget that our first priority is him. Something was off in this church. No matter how good everything else looked, their works became important, more important than their love for him. But only God could see it. And so Jesus was exhorting them. Remember what you felt when you first loved me or when you first became a Christian. I'm just trying to imagine what, what this could have been like. Come back to that. Come back to that passion, that love that you had, that awakening you had when you first believed. Friends, the first place to be an overcomer is not in the world. It's in the church. To overcome what's slipping in your church, in yourself. I can't be responsible for the rest of the church, but I certainly can be responsible for me. And so he says, repent. Which what repent means in the Greek is change your mind. It literally means change your mind. And what repent means in Hebrew is turn around. So repent is a decision. Repentance is a decision. It's not an emotion. And so he says, repent. Basically, change your way of thinking and turn around. Turn back to me. Do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Friends, Jesus is not afraid to close a church down. What do you think it means to remove a lampstand? If a lampstand is a church, it'll be removed. Just as much as he wants a church to be open, he's not afraid to close one down and remove the lampstand. And we need to be warned of this. If the church, if any church, first century or today, is not shining the true light of Jesus Christ, he is not afraid to come in and remove that lampstand. Think about how solid this particular church was. Think about the environment that this church was in. A church is needed in this environment, and yet Jesus was willing to come and remove the lampstand if they didn't repent for leaving their love for him. It's powerful. It's a powerful, powerful message for us today. So many churches out there are so focused on adding locations, are so focused on numbers, are so focused on their production, are so focused on all these other things, good things. They're all good things. But when was the last time some of them personally devoted all their time to him first and then did those things? But this, he says, you have to your credit, that you hate the work and corrupt teachings, basically, of the Nicolaitans. No one knows for sure who the Nicolaitans are. People speculate, and that's what you're going to find. But at the end of the day, I just want to tell you, nobody really knows for certain. So either way, though, they are obviously people that must have misled them, which he also hates. But now here's his appeal. He who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's what we need to hear right now. He who has an ear out there, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. What, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to you, to me. To him who overcomes, I will grant privilege to eat the fruit from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's a guarantee that they will be with him. Because that's the tree we haven't been able to eat from since Adam and Eve. And although this tree disappeared in the Garden of Eden, it reappears in Revelation 22 by the side of the river running through the New Jerusalem with fruit on it 
every month. And so if they overcome, they get to partake of that. So here's my question. We read all of this. We're studying all of this. There's a message for us. Make Jesus your priority above everything else. Did they make it? And what happened to the Temple of Diana? Well, let me start with the church. Historians have letters from the bishop in Antioch, Ignatius of Antioch, and one of his letters was to Ephesus. And in it, he congratulates them on three things. That the members of this church were so faithful to the Lord that they were martyred for their faith. They died for the cause of Christ. Second was their orthodoxy. They held to truth. They were still this zealous church for truth. And lastly, the last thing he congratulated them on was their reputation for being a loving church. They listened. They listened to Jesus when they saw this letter, when this letter was read to them, written by John. They listened and they changed. Do you know that in 431 AD, so centuries after this, a famous council was held in Ephesus in, the, in a church where they settled. And it was a council to discuss adding the book of Revelation to the canon of the New Testament scriptures. And they also settled at this same council, the person of Jesus Christ, and decided that he was fully God and fully man. Boy, I'm glad they figured that out, right? What about the Temple of Diana? It was destroyed multiple times, rebuilt multiple times. But today, there's one little pillar that stands of this temple in a field where it once stood. Please go look that up on the internet. This enormous structure is all but gone. And yet the church flourished for a long time after that. So I hope this blesses you today. And I hope it encourages you. And I hope it gives you some things to think about for your own life or maybe for your own church. Until we meet again, take care. Thank you.